Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now here are your hosts, Mick and Jake. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Mick. Welcome back to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. Now, it's been some time since our last episode, and we've taken full advantage of that to put together a brand new format for the show, which Jake, Ray, and I are really excited about, and which we think you're going to love. Instead of having a different guest on each episode, we've scoured the planet and recruited a crack team of six panellists willing to share their knowledge and experience with you, our wonderful listeners. Each episode will have a moderator and two panellists, one of which will be either Jake or I. Each panellist will have their own topic to discuss and have just 20 minutes to do so, the aim being to provide just enough in those 20 minutes to whet your appetite and give you the motivation to go off and learn more about that topic yourself. Joining Jake and I in this episode is the quintessentially British Sam Davis, who you'll recognise from his video tutorials on the site. So Sam, over to you, your 20 minutes start now. In this podcast, I'd like to take the opportunity to talk to you about UI Stack View. UI Stack View is new in iOS 9, and it's a solution to a lot of the difficulties and problems that you've been having with auto layout over the past few years. Now auto layout has come on an awful long way since when we first started using it, when it was quite painful and now I'm a bit of a lover of auto layout. But still there are things that can be quite difficult. For example, if I want to put a label for a title and then an image underneath it and then underneath that another label for details, then I'd need a huge number of constraints. I'd need to specify that they're all lined up with each other. I'd need to specify the distance between them. And I'd need to pin them to their super view. So we're talking about eight, ten constraints just to line those three things up, all center-aligned on top of each other. And that's precisely what UI Stack View does. It still uses auto layout under the hood, but instead of specifying the constraints, you specify that you want these things lined up on top of each other, and you want to specify the, the space between them. And you want to then just pin that to the edges. So you can reduce those 10 auto layout constraints to just four. And I think it's incredibly powerful. And I'm really excited that we've now got it on iOS 9. And it's going to make designing layouts a hell of a lot easier. I was kind of dragged into the auto layout world kicking and screaming. I wasn't excited about it. And it took me forever to adopt it. And when I did... I, I see the virtue because there's certain things you just can't do with uh, with struts and springs. But as you mentioned, it, simple things require a lot of code. And I had heard of the stack view, and it wasn't until just earlier in prep for this podcast that I really saw how much easier this is going to make our lives. In the WWDC video for UI stack views, they give this example where the problem is you have an existing auto layout storyboard, and you want to change it, and and Obviously, a complex auto layout layout is to change it requires a lot of work. And so they show how easy it is. Can you kind of go, go over that use case where you already have a layout and you just want to add something to it and how Stackview kind of basically saves us from having to start over almost? Yeah, sure. So in a standard kind of auto layout based layout, then every single view has to have some kind of relationship to the views that surround it, whether they be the ones next to it, their siblings, or whether they be their parents. And what this means is in a very simple layout, so you have that layout I spoke about before with a label on the top, an image, and then some other label underneath. If I suddenly want to add an extra layout, uh, an extra view, an extra label, say, in between the middle of that somehow, then I'd have to go ahead and break 
at least one, possibly two constraints. And then I'd have to add this new view in and then add two, three, maybe four constraints to add to, in order to get this new layout, which is not easy. And what actually building up layouts with Otolayout is, isn't too difficult, but coming back to it later on and trying to work out, well, how, what do these constraints actually mean is really quite complicated. With a stack view, which are pretty well supported in Interface Builder, then you can just grab that new view and drag it into where you want it inside the stack view, and then it will relay itself out magically for you whilst you're doing it. So it, rather than having to work out exactly which constraints do I need to break, then Interface Builder will do that for you. It works out that this is the order of these views, so this is the relationships between them. And then you can add views like that, but you can also reorder things really easily as well. You can just drag a view from one position and just move it around a bit, and then that will move that to where you want it to do, and sort out all of those constraints for you, which is considerably easier. So, Sam, you mentioned earlier on that you could do, you could change the alignment of the views and the space in between the views. And this applies to all views contained within that stack view. And then we, we've just talked through a very simple example where we've just got like a very linear layout. We've got one view on top of another view on top of another view. But how would I go about, say, having a label and then two images underneath that are 50% the width of the parent view and then have go back to that linear layout and have two labels on top of each other? When you first learn a bit about stack views, you kind of see, well, yeah, that's really cool, but... You know, it's saving me some constraints, but it's not really that difficult. I can lay things out like that. The real power from stack views comes from when you nest them. So that means that putting a stack view inside a stack view and etc., you can do this to your heart's content. And this is incredibly powerful. So you can do exactly what you were just mentioning there. So I've got this vertical stack view, i.e., things on top of each other. And then one of those things, one of those content views inside the stack view, can be another stack view. So at that stage there, I can say, actually, I want this one to be horizontal, so then I can get exactly what you're after. You've got this image on the top, and then underneath that, you've got two images that are side by side. Well, that's a stack view that's with an, a, a horizontal axis rather than a vertical one. And, of course, all of those other settings, in addition to axis, you can change spacing, you can change... Uh, you mentioned that you wanted them... Uh, sorry, 50% width. That in itself is to do with something called distribution, so that works out how, how wide or how tall these things should be. That in itself is just another property on a stack view. You don't have to set up any constraints to get that. Let me ask this. If you just drop things into a stack view, what is the default behavior? So if I've got, in my, in my imagination, I've got two views that are the exact same size, it's going to space those out evenly. But what if I drop two views in that are different sizes? Is, is it going to center them or is it going to is it going to just put an e a space in between? Like, how does it, what, what's the default? And then if I want to change it, what do I need to do? When you first create a stack view, and the easiest way to create them inside Interface Builder is to just drop your views on the page and then on, 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 side the, on the view, and then select them all and then tell them to turn into a stack, at which point it'll try and guess things like the orientation. So should it be vertical or horizontal? And it'll try and guess, did you want them center aligned or did you want them against the leading edge or the top or however? So the default depends how you've laid them out in the first place. And without any other information, it will make each view its intrinsic content size. So a label will be the right size to fit in the text that it's got. An image will be the, the intrinsic content size of that image. And any custom views will be their intrinsic content size as well. So using all of the auto layout stuff that you, you know and love 
However, you can then override that. You can then specify that you want each of the views to be the same size. You can specify that you want the spacing to be the same. Or you want to, and this one's a little bit weird, but you want the centre of each of the views to be equally spaced. And this looks really good for, for things like text and that kind of thing. In addition, an, a stack view has its own intrinsic content size based on the intrinsic content sizes of its contents. But you can equally pin a stack view to it, all of its sides or set a, an explicit size on it, at which point it will start resizing the, set, the content cell, uh, views themselves. And you can, again, choose how it does that. You can do it proportionally so that they all get compressed or stretched equally. You can specify that just one of them gets stretched or compressed so that it then stretches to fill the, uh, the stack view. And that, that is really quite powerful in its own right. And that it uses, again, it uses auto layout and it uses the content compression resistance priority and the such like. All this kind of auto layout stuff that in the past has been a little bit weird and doesn't really make a lot of sense, it really does start to make some sense with stack views and there are some nice, nice use cases and it fits together nicely. So let's say I've got my storyboard and I've got a few a few view controllers so with some, some views that I've already spent a lot of time laying out, setting up all my constraints. You've now piqued my interest with stat views, and I, I want to start using stat views. Am I going to have to go through and delete all those constraints manually, and then add a stack view as the top level view to that view controller and drag all my other views in? Or is have Apple thought about a way to transition from legacy auto layout to the new stack view model? There's actually a really handy way to do the transitioning, as as with many things that Apple seem to do. You can take it bit by bit, so you don't have to go in and say that my view controller is only going to use stack views. It works really well with the rest of auto layout. But the way to do it is select the views that have already got constraints on them that you want that you think will work well in a stack view. And once you've selected them, you can then just say create a stack view. It'll throw away all of the constraints that relate to those views and create a stack view with it, at which point you can then go and configure it, and then you can create any constraints that you might need to position it. So the approach is very much find the smallest kind of atomic components that make up your view and stack them. So you'd start with the smallest things, like the, the rating label or something like that, you know, the really small bits and pieces. And then you'd work outwards until you've built up this, built up the view, uh, you've built up your entire view using stack views moving outwards. It, would that approach apply to a brand new uh, layout as well? Like, do you, would you say start with the smaller, the, the internal stack views and work out? Or do you start with the, the outer ones and work in? Or what does it just depend? I find it easier to start in exactly that way yet. So I would generally start by building up these little components. So take, I want three labels next to each other inside, a, inside something else. Then I would put those three labels together and stack them and then work outwards. But one of the really cool things about this is that you can actually mock up your layout really easily just by throwing things on the screen onto your view controller and then stack them. Whereas in the past, this would have been quite difficult because you'd have to be thinking all the time, what constraints do I need when I add this? Then you no longer need to do that because you can just kind of drag things on and then say, well, actually, these three things here should be stacked. They go horizontally. And then that in itself is vertically stacked with this thing and you can kind of just work outwards and build up this layout like that. That's certainly the way that... I've been doing it, and I think that's the way that makes the most sense as well. One of the big things to come out of iOS 8 last year was self-sizing table views, which depended 
100% on setting up your auto layout constraints correctly. Do stat views make this much easier? Because I know a lot of people still have problems with cell size in table view cells. On the surface of it, it does seem like it's easy. It's actually exactly the same. You're still doing the same thing. You're still specifying the height entirely in auto layout. It's just that the stack view does a load of that for you. So I'm, one of my favorite places to use stack views is stick a table view cell. Because table view cells generally always have um, you know, kind of three things next to each other. Maybe the one in the middle has a little bit of detail underneath it. It's, it's generally quite simple layout. And that works really well with a stack view. The important thing with it is that once you've built your stack view, you have to pin it to the top and the bottom because that is how the cell knows how big it is. You still have to go through and say that you give it an estimated cell size and make sure that the height is automatic table height dimension or whatever it's called. But the stack view itself will do all of the auto layout sizing for you, which is really handy. And you can build some really quite complex layouts really simply with it. My initial impression when I heard about the stack view, and this was on the watch, but when they first brought it to iOS, I thought this will come in handy when I have views that are like stack views but after watching some of your tutorial videos and the the example on wwdc i realized you can do because you can stack stack views inside of stack views i guess that was stacked too many times there's a lot more you can do with it than you kind of what your first naive impression of it is do you think as people embrace the stack the ui stack view and get used to it that we will see people using ui stack view most of the time like will our layouts going forward you be using more and more stack views or will it, will it be like half stack views and half regular auto layouts constraints? Like what's, what's your sense of how much this is going to be used in terms of our daily laying out? I think that stack views will be the way forward for the majority of layouts. Nearly everything can be broken down into stack views. I mean, the odd cases, like if you wanted to put a load of views in a circle or something, that would be very difficult using a stack view. But the majority of our stuff all kind of breaks down vertically and horizontally in these little components. If you start looking at views, then you start to see that. And that, in many respects, is exactly how layout on the web works. The majority of layout on the web uses exactly the same thing with these kind of rectangular boxes that sit inside of each other. And then you put more things inside there. So that's very much the way that we're used to using layout. So I think there's a huge amount of power. And I think this is where we'll start with a lot of views from now on. I mean, the popularity, you mentioned the watch there. This is almost exactly the same as groups on the watch, layout groups, that's what they're called. Yeah, layout groups on the watch are pretty much just stack views. They're slightly less powerful than stack views, as you'd expect from a watch. But yeah, they're, they're basically the same. And over on Android, they've had linear layout since, well, for many years. And that, again, is exactly the same. And it's often you know, that's where you would start with it. Maybe if you're building a table or something, you'd use a different layout. Obviously, you'd stick with a table view. You wouldn't start trying to build a stack view to replace a table view or some kind of complex collection view. But on the whole, a lot of the layouts that we tend to use are all perfectly buildable via composable stack views. Have you bumped into any examples where the stack view isn't appropriate, where it's not flexible enough, or where just the kind of what it can do doesn't satisfy a layout need that you've had recently? Not especially, but I, don't, I wouldn't start if I, if you've got a very dynamic amount of content that can go in there. So for example, where you would use a table view, that, the reason table views work so well is because they use recycling and you can have an infinite number of rows in there or whatever. That wouldn't be appropriate for a stack view. You wouldn't build a stack view that could have anywhere between five and 10,000 
kind of identical rows. That that wouldn't work like that. And similarly for collection views, you know, you can do some cool stuff with layouts and that kind of thing. Other than that, I don't really think I can't really think of many examples where they're not appropriate. And I think they I think they're pretty versatile. Okay, Sam. So if our listeners are intrigued by stack views, where where can they go to find out more? Well, there's a huge amount of content on the site, you'll be surprised to hear that I've done a video series about stack views that covers all of this kind of stuff. So starting right from the beginning, what are stack views, how can they be used, how does nesting help you, all the way through to how you can do animation with stack views because there's some really cool stuff that you can do really simply uh, for animating stack views. All the way through to how they work in code because they're really easy to use in code as well. I think most of the time you should aim to use them interface builder but you can go into code. There's also a couple of chapters on them in iOS 9 by Tutorials, the book that we've recently released. And in fact, there's a one of the free tutorials that came out of that book is an abridged version of one of those chapters. So there's some great stuff on the site. In addition, of course, to Apple has got a load of great stuff. There's a good, I think there's two uh, WWDC videos that are really quite good on this topic. And actually, I was looking through it earlier, their documentation on UI Stack View is some of the best documentation I've ever seen from Apple, as in it exists and it, it's got diagrams and things in it. It's really quite, really quite verbose. I'm quite impressed. So there's a huge amount of content out there. And as ever with this kind of thing, you just need to play with it to get your head around. What, what does alignment actually mean? What does distribution mean? You only learn that by putting stuff into it and then going and fiddling around with the settings to see whether you can get what you want. So I, I know as well that you've sort of travelled the globe evangelising UI stat view. Are any of your sessions that you've done at these numerous conferences been recorded? Can we can we check out some of those videos as well? I don't think they have, actually. I don't think I've spoken about UI stat view on camera. So I spoke about it at iOS Dev UK, and I'm just about to go and talk about it at CocoConf, but I don't think, don't think either of those were recorded. If you weren't there, you missed out, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right, well, well, we'll call that. It's almost 20 minutes, it's not quite, but I think that's a good place to leave it. Uh, before we get on to your topic, Jake, I just want to get into a, a thanking our sponsor for this episode, which is Harvest. Now, you're a developer working solo or on a team, and you thought that you are wrapping up a project until the client asked for a new feature at the last minute. Do you really know how much time you're spending on every feature, tweak, or bug fix? Harvest is a time-tracking tool built for understanding where your time is going. And for developers, it takes the pain out of time tracking. You can start a timer right from issues in Jira or GitHub without searching for your timesheet. Not only will you understand how much time you're spending on client work, you'll be able to turn your billable hours into an invoice from Harvest within seconds. Harvest integrates with PayPal and Stripe to make it easy for you to get paid. There's built-in reporting in Harvest that lets you see how long previous projects took, and you can leverage this information to make better estimates for future projects. You can create a 30-day free trial at getharvest.com and after your trial expires, enter the code RAY, that's R-A-Y, to save 50% off your first month. So thanks again to Harvest for sponsoring this episode of the RayWendelit.com podcast. Now, Jake, I know you want to discuss something that's close to your heart. So tell us what that is. You've got 20 minutes. Yeah, so I have worked a lot with AV Foundation in the last three or four years. A lot of my client work is... Uh, on video apps, apps that process video or apply filters to photos. And there's a ton of AV Foundation in those projects. And AV Foundation is not something that a lot of developers just haven't had the need to work on AV Foundation a lot. Probably most people have at one point or another played a video 
or maybe use the camera to capture video or audio or a still picture in their app. But AV Foundation is a lot deeper than that. In my experience, it's not the easiest framework to get kind of used to. There's a lot there and there's complexity that you don't, you naively assume away until you start digging into it. But just to give a quick overview, AV Foundation can be broken into three or four major functions. One is capture, so getting video off of the camera sensor, either the front or the back camera, getting a picture off one of those sensors, or getting audio from the microphone. That's capture. Uh, You can also do playback, so playing either local video or a remote video. You can do remote streaming video. It also can do video file editing, so you can create... Uh, iMovie essentially what iMovie does you can do all that in code with its with AV Foundation's editing tools and you can also do low level access to audio or video buffers so you have ways to either from the camera or from a file get CV pixel buffers which is kind of the lowest level data representation of those images or the audio and then you can also uh, write low level buffers to a video or audio file And so those are kind of the primary categories of what you might want to use AV Foundation for. There's a few other random things thrown in. You can do face recognition with AV Foundation. You can do face recognition with either core image or AV Foundation. They're different. They don't overlap. The way you use them is completely different. Uh, What they're good for is slightly different, but they both do face recognition. You can do, I think, the... uh, Some of the QR code reader stuff, I think, is connected to AV Foundation, if I'm not mistaken. Some of the machine vision stuff's in core image and some of it's in AV Foundation and some of it's in both. So I'm curious, Jake, because this is quite low level stuff, like how did you first get into it? At what point did you find in a project where you first started using AV Foundation that you think, okay, I need to, I need to drop down a level now and I need to go and understand what's going on? So I got into it because of the GPU image project. So I was working with Core Image. That was primarily for a book project. I wrote the chapter in iOS 5 on Core Image, and so that, that kind of whet my appetite for uh, image processing. And then sh- shortly after that, GPU Image came out. And so for both Core Image and for, and for GPU Image, I, you need that low-level access to those buffers in order to put the, the data into a GPU, onto the GPU and then process it on the GPU that's where I kind of learned it. And I, I got, I was really excited about GPU image. So I spent a lot of time studying that project. And actually I would still recommend if you're interested in how to use those low level AV foundation classes, the GPU image project might be the best way to learn it because it's working source code. It's open source. You can look at how it works and it is quite complicated. And it's one of those things where if you're not that experienced with it, it's it's much easier to start with a working project and then start manipulating it than it is to go through and read the documentation and try to infer from that what code to write. Uh, even though the documentation is not bad, it's just there's a lot there. So a question I've got is about the playback of video and that kind of stuff, because I'm fairly sure that always used to be, you had to drop down lower than you might expect to be able to play back a video or to do some stuff with it. I'm thinking like AV player objects and that kind of thing. Is that right? So... Something that I'm, I'm working on some tvOS stuff at the moment, and I think I've been using AV Player View Control or something. How does that fit in with AV Foundation and, and the playback aspect of AV Foundation? You have, are you doing, well, not that this makes a difference. Well, it makes some difference, but are you doing local or remote assets that you want to play? Uh, remote assets. Okay. Moment. 
So some of it's the same, but a video file is actually a container that contains multiple media streams. In most cases, what that means is you've got one video stream and one audio stream. And so you think of that as being simple, but from AV Foundation's point of view, that's two separate things. And so you have one class that handles loading the entire container file. And then you have another class that handles loading either an audio or a video track. Um, and then you have the AV player uh, object, which handles taking that media data and pushing it somewhere. Usually that means an AV player layer, which is a, which is a CA layer that handles buffers and displays them. So it is like, you're like, why can't this be easy? And you know, there used to be the, um, well, maybe it's still there. There, there was an MP player view controller that did everything for us. It gave you playback controls and all that jazz. Um, but obviously if you want to do any customization or if you want to do anything fancy, you got to drop down. And the difference between the high level, easy way of doing things and the drop down lower level way is this huge chasm. Like it's not just a little bit more complicated. It's like you get, you get the real easy way with no customization or you get the whole AV foundation package where you can do almost anything you want, but none of it's particularly obvious, right? So as I say, you've got your, you've got classes to handle the file, and then you've got classes to handle the individual media streams. You have what's called an AV player item that you will initialize with one of those uh, streams, one of those tr uh, track objects. And then you hand that to the player and the player will play it. And usually before you've done that, you've also connected that AV player to its AV player layer. So that data actually shows up. So there's like four or five things you need to know. And sometimes there's like a initializer that will handle three or four of those steps for you all at once. Um, the only other thing about that with remote media is that because the file is not available instantly when the player wants to read it, um, usually you have to do a callback that asynchronously loads information about that file. So as I say, there's going to be different tracks, audio and visual tracks. There's going to be the length. You don't know how long the file is if it's not local. And so there's a callback that you can say, load the following keys. And when you've figured out the value for these keys, give me a callback. Or when there's an error, give me a callback. So when you're loading a remote file, sometimes what you want to do is load the, the, the asset from the URL into an AV asset class and then load those keys. And then once you have the av availability of those keys, like duration and how many tracks there are, then you can actually load one of the tracks into a track asset and load it in your player and play it. So it, like it is like... Just right there, you get it, right? It's, there's a ton you have to do where it's like, I just want to load, just play a remote URL. Like, why do I have to do 15 things? But, it, but that's, that's AV Foundation. And, it, and because this is quite low level, are we, are we talking about a C API or does it have a, an Objective-C no, layer? Or? It's all Objective, all of AV Foundation is Objective-C. Okay. Uh, there are related C-level interfaces that you might need to do if you drop down lower, which by dropping down lower, what I mean is you want access to the buffers. Then you will you have to use some, C, some core video APIs to manage those buffers. But if you're just doing what we just talked about, playing remote files, that's all Objective-C. So it plays only, nicely with Swift then. And I haven't, I've, I'm eager to, I haven't done a ton with Swift. All my client projects have all been legacy Objective-C projects. So I'm eager to work with AV Foundation more in Swift just to see how, if there are any gotchas or if there are any issues, but I, I haven't encountered anything yet. And, but that's you know, a limited amount of experience playing with it in Swift. The other thing to know about AV Foundation is that you usually are working with, so if, for example, if you want to, if you use a slider and you want to scrub back and forth in say a video playback file, um, in order to do that, you have to use a CM time struct. So CM time is a representation of time. And it has, it's, it's a rational number. It basically has a, 
a numerator and a denominator. And so you'll say, you know, there's all these ways to handle CM time to compare them and to add them and subtract them. But that's all C functions that you use to handle CM time. And so you'll say, you know, I want to go to, you know, 30 seconds into this video. Well, 30 seconds is going to be, you know, if it's 30 frames per second, that's like 900 frames. So you'll say one, one over 30 is the first frame, two over 30 is the second. And so if you wanted to go to 30 seconds in, it would be 900 over 30. Um, but you'll also see much more precise so where the denominator will be like 600 or 10,000. And so you can, you can represent timing very, very precisely with CM time. And a lot of the, like the way you seek is by handing uh, the AV player, there's a call on it, which is seek to time, but you have to hand it a, uh, one of these CM time objects, this rat or struct, it's this rational number. So you'd like, I just want to use like a float to represent how many seconds in it's like, well, you got to figure out how to convert that float into a CM time in order to do that. So you've mentioned you've used this quite a lot, um, in the, the contracting work that you do. Can you give us sort of an example of what some of those projects are to give us an idea of, you know, when, when would be an appropriate use of AV Foundation? One of my clients is a, an app that's in the photo and video entertainment, and it's basically a video editor. You can add different light leak overlays and different, um, like, grit and grain overlays. So they basically take two videos. They take your video that you've just shot on your phone, and then they add another video over the top to stylize it. And you can do like that six or seven times to create different stylistic effects. So it's like Instagram, but for video is kind of the short answer. But that's actually like that process of adding a bunch of overlay videos is actually extremely difficult because every time there's different ways to do it. But when you process video, you're loading it into memory and it's quite large. If you've worked with images, 10 megapixel image or an H an HD video frame is a lot of data. So if you want to composite three or four or five video frames together all at once, that's a lot of data to hold in memory. And so you usually you end up having to do it stepwise, which means you compress, you decompress from the video file to a, to a buffer, and then you recompress to another video file, and then you decompress it again. So you do it one step at a time. But every time you compress a video file, like a JPEG, you lose some data. It's lossy. And so you try to avoid doing that compression step more often than you have to. So these are some of the kind of issues you run into. You mentioned there that you were creating video effects by compositing different videos together. And you mentioned kind of a little bit like Instagram. Instagram kind of also does kind of filters that aren't com uh, compositions. They're just random filters and things. And I know you can do that in Core Image. So is it possible to do that in AV Foundation? You mentioned that you can drop right down to the lower level. Do you have to do it there? Or do they come with standard filters? Or do you have to kick it out to Core Image so that it processes each frame and then passes it back again? You, you do have to kick it out to Core Image or OpenGL or Metal or whatever. You, you do have to. What AV Foundation hands you is a CV pixel buffer, which is, which is like a CG image ref. It's just a buffer with data about each pixel. And then you hand that to Core Image. And Core Image, for example, has methods to consume a CV pixel buffer. So AV Foundation will hand you a CV pixel buffer. And then you can Core Image will take a CV pixel buffer, turn it into a CI image object, from there, you can filter it, vend it to a CV pixel buffer, hand it back to AV Foundation, it will then write it to a file. Can it do this kind of stuff in real time? Because that, to me, sounds like quite hard work, right? You've got this 
you, you've got 30 frames a second and each one is quite a lot of data, right? You're going to push that out of wherever it is in AV Foundation over to over to Core Image to do some stuff with, which presumably means some memory copying maybe, I don't know. And then it passes it back again. Can it do this in real time? Or, yes, know. it can. It can do HD. It depends on the complexity of the filter. The, the GPU quickly becomes the bottleneck. So, for example, Gaussian Blur is a very expensive operation. And so if you want to do a Gaussian Blur with a, a really large blur radius, that sometimes you, you can create chains that can't be done in real time. But for the most part, you can do pretty cool stuff in real time. And the GPU has gotten better and better and better. So when I first started working on this stuff, there was really cool filters, but we couldn't do them in real time. A lot of those now we can. So you'd be surprised at how, how large a video and how much image processing you can do in real time. And then once you get that back, you can you can display it on the screen and also save a copy of it or push it yeah. up to... You can, you can kind of split these pipelines out and do different sources and sinks or stuff okay. mm-hmm. yeah you can save it to a file you can display it on the screen displaying on the screen's not very expensive it depends on how you do it but because there's the ca layer that just takes a pixel buffer and displays it that's not super expensive writing it to disk is is more expensive but it's still you can still do it in real time for again depending on how what else you're doing it at the time so we spent quite a bit of time talking about image and video processing but obviously another large part of av foundation is is playback and manipulation of of audio so can you talk us through again where we might want to use it with, in, with regards to audio in most times if you just want audio there are other ways of handling there's an av recorder object that i don't know if it's part, i'm not sure if it's part of the av foundation framework it sounds like it is because it's av something but it's i i don't i haven't used it myself but it just records audio off the mic uh, and it's real easy you don't have to start up a capture session uh, you can just use start up this AV recorder. And again, I haven't used this, so I don't know all the ins and outs of the API. Um, if you want to take audio and take it and get the raw buffers of the audio and then put it into like core audio and process the audio in core audio and then save it to a file or, or um, that's more involved in that looks that the pipeline of that. And I'm not a core audio expert. I've used it a little bit, but I haven't ever built anything complex with it. But the pipeline looks very similar to the the image processing examples we just talked about. Like you have either an AV asset reader, which reads from a file, or you have an AV capture session that captures from either the mic or the or the camera, and then you can get raw pixel buffers in the case of capture in real time, and then you do whatever you want to do, and then you convert those pixel buffers back into something AV Foundation can take and either play. I've, I've never done the example of processing audio and playing it out the speaker. I'm not really sure. I know apps do that. I'm not sure how that works. But in the case of saving it to a file, it's the same thing as if you were to save it to a video stream. Speaking of capture and saving to a file, there's two ways to do that. There are methods that you can just basically attach to your AV uh, capture session and you just tell them what kind of file to save. And those are kind of the higher level ways of doing it. You just say, this is the kind of file I want. It's going to be coming from the, from the camera and the, and the mic just go ahead and create a video file, call it this, save it on disk. In that case, you never have to touch any of those low-level buffers. But if you want to do any processing, you need access to those buffers to do that processing. And so if you want to do something more complex, you use, a, um, you use the data output methods on the capture session or you use AV Asset Reader, which gives you raw data buffers. And so like, there's like a way low-level level and then there's like a mid-low level level where you can just, <laughs> there are ways to save things to files that aren't, super complicated and another thing about media is that 
you've got all kinds of different formats. So video data, for example, can be rep represented as RGBA data, or it can be represented as uh, planar data, like the YUV type stuff. And I don't, I don't fully grasp all the, I know how to write the code, but I don't know. I've never actually had to go in and manipulate the data with a loop. So I don't know exactly what the, what the or byte order is, but there's different formats and you have to set all these callbacks and these data methods up so that they vend you the format you want. And then you have to, when you create a writer, you have to tell it what format you're going to give it so that it knows what to, what it's looking at, what to do. And if you do it wrong, sometimes you end up with really weird, like your colors are all wrong because it's green when it should be yellow. You know, it, the hue's all twisted around. Um, but some of those mid-level objects I talked about, you don't have to go that deep. You don't have to tell it like, here's the format you're getting from the capture session. Here's the format you need to use to write to the, to the file. But the stuff I've done has always been pretty low level. And so that's the level I've worked at is like with raw buffers. Okay, Jake, so we're almost out of time, but just, just as a, like a sum, um, if anybody else, if anybody listening is interested in AV Foundation, where's the best place to, to find out more? The AV Foundation like resources that are holistic are few and far between. There's a book by Bob McCune. I think it's called Mastering AV Foundation, um, but it kind of covers the framework in its entirety. That's a good resource. There's a couple of AV Foundation tutorials on the site. One, I think, is about creating video compositing, which we didn't mention, but you can use AV Foundation to basically mix different videos together and create transitions and things like that. And there's one other. I think there's two on the site. And then, like I say, if, if you want to go into the low-level data buffer stuff that I've worked with, the best resource is GPU image. And it, it isn't, I mean, it's just code. It's not the friendliest thing, but it works. And you can look at it and say, okay, if I need to set up an AV asset reader, this is how I do it, and this works. So, Okay, great. And you've just come in just on, on the time, so, so well done on that. Uh, I will make sure that we put all Sam's and Jake's references into the show notes so, so you can go out and check out all these things that they, they recommended if you're interested to learn more, either UI Stat View or AV Foundation. Uh, as always, we'd love to get your feedback, especially on this new format. So that's podcast at raywendlick.com. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the raywendlick.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, and don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.